following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. I want to begin by asking you this question. How many, how many of you, before you had any interaction and separate from any of your interactions with Artisan Church, know what a flannel graph board is? All right, that's a pretty large percentage of church nerds. Because um, I don't know anywhere else in the world that Flanograph exists. Am I done? You can, am I being amplified at all right now? Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, I don't know anywhere else in the world that Flanograph exists except in church. I grew up going to church every Sunday twice and Wednesdays most weeks. And in Sunday school, one of the things that would always come up is the Flanograph board. A Flanograph board is... Well, this is a very majestic Flanograph board. This is like... <laughs> Flanograph Plus, but this is the idea. It's a board with some felt on it and uh, little Bible characters and things that stick to the felt, right? And the teachers would use these Flanograph boards to tell us the stories from the Bible. Most of what I know about the story of the Bible came to me through Flanograph or something very similar. And then probably a few of you in the room would say that's true for me as well, right? Uh, I think what's going on here, by the way, is that I'm uh, 20 inches higher than I usually am and we may be fighting some feedback stuff, and that's, that's okay. We'll just agree to live with it, right? I won't mention it again if, if you don't, right? <laughs> so the problem with the way that I was taught these Bible stories is that I grew up my whole life hearing them, and then I went off to college as a teenager, a late teenager, for the purpose of studying the ministry, and I still didn't know how all these stories fit together with each other accurately, Right? The problem with a flannel graph approach to understanding Scripture is that you end up thinking, if you're a kid, that uh, Moses was like neighbors with Peter, right? And they went to Abraham's house for dinner, probably, right? And you, you, there's, there's, too often there's no connection to the bigger story, right? So that was my problem growing up. And a um, long time ago, I basically swore that as a pastor, I would never let anybody in my church... Um, have that problem. So if you are here often enough and pay attention enough, you will, uh, you will have a flannel graph understanding of faith that is a story-based understanding. You'll see how all the little pieces fit together. That's my hope anyway. If I'm doing a good job, um, that's where I want to go. So because uh, we have a lot of material to cover, and by a lot I mean the entire Old Testament in four weeks, um, <laughs> We will necessarily go pretty fast through this. Sometimes I will summarize what the story says, and uh, if you want me to slow down and read a little bit out of the Bible if I haven't read the text, just say, hey, hey, can you tell me more about that? I will stop and do that. I'm happy to do it. We cut some stuff out of our liturgy this morning so that we don't strain the teachers too much when I go long. But as soon as we get into the flannel graph, it's going to be fun, and you won't mind that I go long. Uh, But... So we're going to try to do um, about 22 chapters of the book of Genesis, which is a lot of story this morning, and we'll see how we do, okay? You agree to stop me if you want to know more, and um, after worship is over, this, thing, this board will, will be brought down here, and you can come and take a closer look at it and feel the stuff, and the, the artists who worked on this the last time we did it, and this time, again, have done a great job. So the Bible begins with 
stories of creation. And yes, I say stories plural. You've heard me mention that before. There are uh, two distinct stories in Genesis 1 and 2. And if you read them both literally, they are actually mutually exclusive, if you read them honestly literally. Now, um, some people who have different commitments about the age of the earth and so forth can contort them a little bit, but I don't actually think that's the way these books are intended to be read. These stories, I don't think, are intended to be historical or um, uh, scientific or any of those things. They are poetry. You know, some people would even argue that Genesis 1 is a song. There's rhythm and meter and uh, Hebraic rhyme, by which I mean not like cat rhymes with mat, because Hebrew has way too much rhyming for that to be interesting, but that the ideas rhyme. And if you read the story in Genesis 1 with the days, we talked about this a few weeks ago, there's evening and there's morning the first day, there's evening and there's morning the second day. That's a, that's a Hebrew poetic rhyme. That parallelism is, is their equivalent of rhyming. So it's a very poetic story, and um, you heard it preached in some ways through um, Francis of Assisi's hymn, but God you know, hovering over the darkness and saying, let there be light, right? And so then there's light, and then he makes lights, plural, these lamps, the sun and the moon. And then he goes through and makes all the, the different animals and plants and things in a very particular order. That's the story in Genesis 1. In Genesis 2, things get more specifically human, right? So there, humanity is created in Genesis 1. Something very theologically important comes out of that story, the fact that all of us, men and women, are made in God's image. Regardless of who you are, what you've done, anything like that, nothing can change the fact that you are a human being made in the image of God. That's what Genesis 1 teaches us. In Genesis 2, however, things get a little bit more particular, by which I mean we have particular human beings. And I'm going to try to get these in order. I put them in order and we'll see how well I did. But you have Adam and Eve, right? They have names, although their names are kind of generic. Adam's name is man, right? Adam in Hebrew. And they've got happy little trees. And what it, what it actually says is the Lord God formed the man out of dust, right? He put the guy together out of dirt. And I may have more luck on this side with the sound, so. And then, now you have to kind of pretend that it's just, it's just Adam here, right? Because Eve is not yet in the picture. But the story goes on to say that the, the, the Lord observes... It's not good that man, Adam, Adam, should be alone. And so what he does for Adam is he makes him what? A series of animals to be his companions, <laughs> right? It doesn't jump right to, right to the wife. It starts with the cat, right? Adam's a, like a coder. He, he, he's an expert in JavaScript and he has a cat, right? <laughs> And then he, he starts to make some more friends, and he decides he wants a dog. <laughs> I'm sorry, I have a dog bias, and I don't mean to impart that on any of you as, as uh, certainly not scriptural. It's more like the revealed knowledge of God that... Uh, 
Avla's going to punch me so hard after this. <laughs> so he puts Adam into a deep sleep, and he creates a woman. Does he make her out of the dust like he made Adam? Does he make, like, maybe he uses gold dust because she's going to be, like, awesome? No. He makes her right out of Adam's side. And this, you see this image of one person now is two next to each other. And in their relationship with each other, they begin to reflect the image of God in, in new ways, in different ways. It's not an authoritarian thing. It's not Adam had, you know, he got first dibs, right? And Eve got the, like the, the old dirt. He made them right out of each other, and it's this kind of connection thing, which is really beautiful. And as you can see, they're both naked and not ashamed. Um, Jason, my uh, friend and one of the founding pastors of Artisan, when we did this first time, called that naked camping, right? (laughs) (laughs) Part of the original created order, naked camping. (laughs) So here's what God says to them. Adam... Eve, you can do anything you want but one thing. Enjoy this beautiful creation in any way you'd like, but there's one tree that you should not eat of because if you eat that fruit, you'll die. Just one rule. Back then. Now we have a lot more, don't we? That's how progress happens. So what we learn from these creation stories in the beginning, some simple kind of principle, top-level stuff, is that God is the creator of all things and all people. We learn that creation is good. Now, this is a very simple statement for us to make, especially people who've grown up in the Judeo-Christian ethic, that creation is good. But in contrast to the other creation myths of the time, that's radically different. um, Whereas in, in the... The Jewish telling, which we as Christians have adopted, creation is good, humanity is good. In other creation stories, creation comes out of horrible things. The rape of goddesses and giants fighting each other and like pounding mountains into the ground. And it's really like all chaos and bad. This is fairly unique in ancient literature that creation should be thought good and that humanity should be thought good. And... um, I would love to talk to you sometime about how Christian theology, particularly in the West, from Augustine on, has um, misunderstood and kind of misapplied the idea of creation as good. I think the Eastern Church, from Irenaeus on in that stream, if you know your uh, church fathers, as I know you all do, uh, have a better take on what that means, and we could talk about that sometime over a drink, perhaps. Uh, We also learn, as I said, that men and women are created in God's image. The word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is what the apostles used and what we sometimes see our translation coming from, is icon. And when we were doing the Blue Parakeet book, we talked about icon, E-I-K-O-N, as an image of God. Human beings, all of us, images of God. And we also learned that, that humanity has a calling to till the earth and keep it. To have dominion over it. And not dominion in the sense of, like, I'm going to control and ruin this, which is what we did, but more in the sense of, uh, of um, given, you were given care of the earth. 
commanded to be fruitful and multiply, which is the only command that we have universally obeyed as, as, a, as a broad human race. But all was not well forever because temptation led us to another place. Let's make this tree a little bit bigger. Put Adam and Eve over on the side a little more here. You see this, this oddly embodied serpent climbing up the tree, right? The pre-fall serpent with hands and feet and stuff. And he, he tempts and questions this couple. He says to the woman, did God really say that if you eat the fruit of this tree, you would die? Because... Is that what he said? And Eve's answer is very telling. She says, well, we can eat from any, any tree, but, but if we eat from this tree or, or even touch it, God says we'll die. Is that what God said? No, that is not what God said. He didn't say anything about you can't touch it. I th- there's a little hint at what humanity is like in that, in that adaptation that she makes. It's, a, it's like a combination of the fact that we want to kick against the rules and think that they're worse than they really are, and of the fact that we, we sometimes want to expand the rules to be bigger than they were intended to be. The Pharisees had a phrase for this, actually. They called it putting a hedge around the law. So here's the law that you have to obey. We all have to obey it. As Pharisees, we're going to put a hedge around that, and we're not even going to get close to the edge. We're not even going to walk up to it. We're not even going to touch the fruit let alone eat it. And here's another thing that sometimes comes from this this story when Eve eats the fruit. Sometimes men especially kind of like consider women to be the root of all evil, right? All the temptations that they cause and bring upon the world. No. What the text says is that she ate some And she gave it to her husband, who was with her. The implication being, the whole time. (laughs) Right? He's one of those guys. He's like, I'm not going to do the bad thing first. But if someone else were to do it, I might. I mean, how much worse could it be if now I eat the fruit? Eve was the one who did it, which is exactly what he says. When they eat the fruit... It says their eyes are open. This is Genesis 3, 7. And they, they knew that they were naked. I wish I knew what was causing that. And suddenly, they are naked and ashamed. And so they, they sew some leaves together. And this is the first ever instance of the, of the phrase naughty bits. They, they said, <laughs> you know, right? So how does God respond to this disobedience of the one rule? You had one job, Adam and Eve. Well, clearly, God just stomped them dead, right? <laughs> this is what we call Monty Python justice. <laughs> No, 
what he did was he called for them and asked, where are you? What happened? Did you eat? Did you, did you eat the fruit on that one tree? The one tree? Oh, you were just seeing how good the other tree was. And then the blame game begins. Adam says, well, well, I did, the woman you made, she gave it to me and I ate it. And he says, Eve. And she goes, the serpent you made, he tempted me. I wonder if the story of the entire world would have been any different if they had just fessed up. If they just said, ah, we, we screwed that up. Yes, we disobeyed you, and we're so sorry. Can we please keep having the other fruit? But that is not what they did. They blamed and pointed fingers and denied. And So God, in kind of an interesting gesture, something about this spot right here, says, you know, put those, put those fig leaves away. I, I'll make you some clothes, and he makes them out of animal skins, which is the first indication in Scripture we have of of animals being killed for human use. It's almost a a prefiguring of the idea of sacrifice as as a necessary requirement following a sin. And he sends them out, out of the garden, you, don't lose your animal skins. I know how nervous you get when you're naked. And he guards, he sets at the uh, entrance to Eden a cute little angel to guard the way back in with a flaming sword. (laughs) And then he pronounces a curse on the serpent and on the man and on the woman. The curse on the serpent is very interesting, by the way. He says to the serpent, now you're going to crawl on your belly the rest of your days. Forget it. Arms, they're gone. No more armed serpents. And there's going to be enmity between your offspring, serpent, and between her offspring, meaning her her children and children's children and children's children. And what Christian theologians call this is the proto-evangelion, which is a fancy Greek word that means first gospel, the first telling of the gospel, the first hint at what will happen between the descendants of the tempter, right, and the descendants of Eve. And if you remember way back that the, the, uh, the, temp- the uh, not temptation, uh, the passion of the Christ, the other one is a very different movie, um, that scene in the beginning in the garden with the serpent coming and then the foot stomps on the head, I will cr- he will crush your head with his heel. That's what, the, that's what Genesis 3.15, uh, I think it is, says. It's the proto-evangelion. It's the first hint of Jesus being woven into the entire story of Scripture. And we're going to see a lot more of that as we continue through the Old Testament. So what we learn from this account, this part of the story, is that humanity has fallen. Uh, that icon, that image of God that we bear is still there with us, but it's cracked. It's distorted. We learn that sin separates us from peace with God, cast out of Eden. And again, you, you begin to see the hints of that sacrificial system which will come into the story later. 
So the next uh, old Bible story I want to share with you is the story of Noah and the flood. We'll move these guys over a little bit to make room. This is in Genesis uh, 6 through 9. And uh, you, you know this story, right? Let me read some scripture. Can somebody give me a red Bible, please? I didn't remember to bring one with me. Thank you, got it. So this is the description of the world sometime later, right? You can try to take the, the, the genealogies and add the... But that's not how those work. Don't, just don't do that, okay? Don't try to put numbers at this. All right. Chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that He had made humankind on the earth and it grieved Him to His heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out from the earth the human beings I've created, people together with animals and creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. This is a very interesting, I, I could talk for, for hours about the idea of God being sorry that he did something and what that means for the way the world works and doesn't work. Thank you, guys. <laughs> for ruining everything. I was fine here until you... <laughs> I'm just teasing you. Thank you so much. So... So it's like God is, is mad at humanity and he's, he is just going to shoot them dead, right? He's like Katniss Everdeen, <laughs> except that he shoots flaming swords, right? <laughs> Angels over here. They're just going to have to go naked because that keeps falling off and I'm not going to be putting it back anymore. So God is determined to wipe out humanity in this story and then there's this little last verse. Verse 8, but Noah found favor in the sight of the Lord. You remember Noah, right? Noah, uh, God, God apparently liked Gladiator a lot, right? <laughs> Noah has found favor with God. And then you, you could tell the story from that point on out, can't you? How God told Noah to build What? And Arky Arky, that's right, thank you, somebody got the Arky Arky, it was in my notes, I didn't, I didn't expect somebody to come up with that one, that is a deep cut. By the way, Ark is just a word that means box or chest, right, so the, the Ark in the Noah movie is, is intended to be very close to the, um, the description of how it's built in the Bible, I'm told, and it's, it's like a rectangle, isn't it? Right, so, the, and when you see the Ark of the Covenant next week when we start, or not next week, but the week after when we return to the to the, um, the account in the Bible of Indiana Jones and the Ark of the Covenant. But for now, the Ark is just a very, very big chest that stores things, right? And he tells him to put how many animals of each kind in the Ark? Two, except for most of the animals when he wants 14, right? Seven pairs of clean animals and one pair of the unclean animals and then the food for them and all that stuff, um, By the way, have you, uh, uh, I think it's Ricky Gervais that does a stand-up bit where all he does is read this story straight from the Bible. 
and his audience is just laughing uproariously at the, at the fantastical nature of this story and how silly it is. And I don't want to spend too much time on that, that argumentative side of things, but that's the problem that arises when you insist on reading the Bible through um, kind of modern historical lenses. These first chapters especially, if you don't understand and, and can't identify poetry and um, story in the Bible, and if you can't appreciate it as still inspired by God and meaningful and important and authoritative and all the things that we love and say about the Bible, you're going to have a hard time because the Bible is chock full of poetry and story. And uh, Okay, I won't go down that road too far. Ricky Gervais is not very nice about this. I understand um, skepticism. Believe me, I do, but he's just not a very nice skeptic. All right, so Noah and his family and the animals, they get into the arky arky, and the rains come down and the floods come up. And when the flood subsides and the ark comes to rest on the mountaintop, what do we see? The beautiful rainbow, right? And it's so peaceful. And what a beautiful... I mean, we were at High Falls hiking and we saw the rainbow come... Have you ever been at High Falls and seen the rainbow that comes up between the mist? It is absolutely gorgeous, and, and it's this peace came over us. But that's not what the Bible actually says about the rainbow. It doesn't use the word rainbow. It says, I will put my bow in the sky. Right? And now where is the arrow pointed? Never again will I bring a flood on the earth destroy everyone. I'm going to put my bow in the sky. And those of us who are Christians and understand and know the story of Christ and his incarnation and sacrifice see something much more profound than Roy G. Biv and a pretty scene in the sky. It's a war bow that is stretched in the sky pointing to the heavens. All right. I'm going to um, skip over the story of the Tower of Babel, or if you uh, are English or Mumford and Sons, Babel. Um, <coughs> but when you come to look at this later, please look at this beautiful Tower of Babel. It's M.C. Escher's Tower of Babel. It's really beautiful. Uh, you can read that one on your own. That's in Genesis... Um, 11, I think. I didn't write it down. I'm pretty sure it's 11. I want to jump to Abraham because we are running short of time. And where are you, my friend? There he is. This is where the narrative begins to look a little different. You start to see more detail about the people involved. Abraham, or Abram as he was known at first, and his wife Sarah, who was originally known as Sarai, and the story of their family that begins to emerge in the chapters that follow look and feel very different from the stories that preceded them. In Genesis 12, I would say, is where the, the literary genre changes somewhat, okay? And you... I, 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 
I want to be careful how much to say or not say about this because it's not really the point of, of flannel graph. But this is where I think the history begins in a different way. Okay, I'll say it that way. That way nobody will be angry at me, perhaps. <laughs> Certainly, the, the tone starts to change, right? And Genesis 12, I'll read a few verses here. Abram is just a, a, a nomad, just a wandering herdsman, like so many other people of his time. And the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Even right there, it's pretty amazing. The land that I will show you. I'm not showing you anything now. You have to go first. Man, that's a sermon right there. You are not going to get to see your destination until you start to walk. That would preach, as they say. And then he says, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went. He believed God, and it's credited to him as righteousness. But he and his wife are very old and they don't have any children. And so he begins to, to question how God is going to make him the father of a great nation. How are you going to bless the whole earth through my family if I don't have a family, God? By the way, the heir in my household is, is a slave right now. That's how it works. It's like a... Like a um, <clears throat> an inheritance version of, of what happens when the president dies, right? And, but the vice president dies, and then it's the speaker of the house, and then, like, the, right now, Abram's heir is the chair of the Ways and Means Committee, right? <laughs> like, that is not going to do. That is just not, that's not what I had in mind, God. I wanted a family. I wanted to see my boys. So he calls him out, and he tells him, Abram, Look up. Look up at the stars. It was a beautiful night in Rochester, by the way. You could see all seven of our stars. <laughs> Imagine him wandering in the wilderness with no city lights anywhere and looking up on a clear night how many stars he would see. And he says, count them. That's how many your descendants will be. More than you can count if you believe in me. And then Abram says something which I think is quite bold. He says, how can I be sure? How am I to know? Sometimes when you ask God for proof, the answer is silence. Sometimes when you ask for proof, you got more than you bargained for. And that's what happened to Abraham, then still known as Abram. He says, okay, Abram, you want to know how this will happen? You want proof that I will keep my word? Go get me a cow, a sheep, a goat, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. <laughs> right? And Abraham's like, 
Oh, no, I, that's all right. I believe you. It's okay. I don't, I don't need... Uh, we're good. No, no, Abram. Go get the things. Go get them. <laughs> and then he, so he brings the animals and the Lord says, okay, cut them in half. <laughs> right? This is a grisly scene. <laughs> All the 10-year-old boys in the room are going, oh, cool, blood. <laughs> and Abram is terrified. He knows what this means. When a weaker party makes an agreement with a stronger party, the stronger party would say, rip these animals apart and walk through the middle. Look to either side and know that if you do not keep your covenant with me, that's what will happen to you. And Abraham is waiting for that other shoe to drop. Waiting for that consequence to be predicted. And he waits. And he waits. And he waits. And the sun goes down. Starts to get dark. And the buzzards come and start eating the animals. And he starts trying to drive them away and he's waiting and he's waiting. And suddenly he sees a smoking, flaming pot emerge. He has this vision. And the fiery, smoky pot passes through between the animals, taking the place of that weaker party in, the, in this grisly covenant ceiling scene. God says to Abram, rather than the other way around, if I do not keep my word to you, may I be like these animals. So what we begin to learn from Abram, righteousness comes through faith. God believe, or Abram believed God and walked out of his house not that he had one, he was a wandering nomad, but you get what I mean, to a land that he didn't even know where he was going yet because he believed God and it's credited to him as righteousness. We see also a very important concept that God is a covenant-making God. This is actually a reiteration of the covenant that he's made already with, with all of humanity. There's a really neat covenant passage in Genesis 9, I think it is, following the, the rainbow. All right. You can go look that up sometime. God makes these promises these unilateral guarantees. And the fact that we do everything in our power to try to take God's place and bring that stuff to fruition ourselves, and the fact that we don't deserve any of it in the first place and all of our actions following make that worse, none of that changes the fact that God makes covenants with us, with His people. I mean... The, the stories of how Abram and Sarai tried and tried and tried to take matters into their own hands, it's absurd. She, uh, the, the, the story before they had children, she says to Abram, well, go, go sleep with my handmaiden and have a, a child with her because it's clearly not, this baby's not going to grow in my belly. And so he does, and they have Ishmael. God honors the promise to Ishmael. He makes a promise to him out in the wilderness when he's been sent away. Ishmael, the father of the Arabic peoples. He remains true. And eventually Abraham does have a son with Sarai. With Sarah. His son is Isaac. Do I have time to tell the story of Abraham and Isaac? 
I'll do it quickly. It's not, very, it's not fair at all to tell this story quickly because it's a very disturbing story. So Abraham and Sarah have the son that God has promised, but just the one. And there comes a time when, Ab- when God says to Abraham, take Isaac out and go up onto the mountain. He's calling him out to have him sacrifice his son. Which is so gruesome and horrifying to our ears. The fact is, in that time and culture, human sacrifice was a very common religious practice. And so this is, this is commonly called the testing of Abraham, as in we're going to test to see if you're faithful to follow God right to the point of this most horrific act. I can buy that interpretation. I could also buy the interpretation that the test is actually in saying, are you going to act like your neighbors or are you going to act the way that you know is... is the way that God's people should act. And you can connect that to some stories that happened before when Abraham showed mercy to strangers and so forth. We don't need to go into that. We certainly don't have time to go into it. But what happens is that Abraham takes Isaac onto the mountain, binds him, places him on the altar, comes to the point of raising his knife before God says, stop. The angel of the Lord says, stop. Look in the thicket. There's a ram caught in the thicket. And he says, make the sacrifice with the ram instead of with your son. God was never going to require Abraham to follow through with this. And whatever your interpretation of of what the test actually was in this passage, it's important to remember that. It is entirely unfair for me not to unpack that anymore, but we've got to, to move on. What I want to conclude with today is that in this story that's beginning to unfold in the Old Testament, you find yourself. We are being shaped by the words of Scripture all year this ministry year. And the first step in doing that, as Scott McKnight said in the Blue Parakeet that we read together, is to understand that the Bible is a story in which we have a part. God invites you, all of you, no matter who you are, what you've done, where you've been, any of those things, into His story into the story that He has crafted throughout history from the time of creation, whether it was 10,000 or 65 billion years ago, that story has been unfolding and it's, it's that story into which He invites me and He invites you. You are called the way Abraham was called to be blessed so that you can be a blessing to those around you. That's what the story is about. And throughout that story, you hear the name of Jesus whispered again and again and again. We've seen just a few hints of it this morning. We'll see more 
when we resume flannel graph on September 7th, and we'll do it for three weeks, three more weeks after this. But as we come to the communion table, I want you to think about two of the images that we've looked at today. This one with the bow pointed at the heavens, and this one with the innocent son, a sacrifice. This is what we see in the table of the Lord. In the bread, we see Christ's body broken for you and for me. In the cup with the wine and the juice, we see Christ's blood, innocent, shed for you and for me, for the forgiveness of sins. When we take communion together, it's not just a ritual. Although it is that. I don't have any problem with rituals. It's a participation in the story. It's a remembrance of the type of God that we worship, who sacrifices himself for us. And so if you're following Jesus, regardless of your church affiliation or none, this table is open for you. The table, not of the church, but of the Lord, is made ready for all who would follow him. We'll sing a couple more songs in worship. And I'd invite you to respond at the communion table. And if you'd like to have uh, prayer, you can come here. And uh, I believe there'll be a member of the prayer team who will pray with you. So respond however the Spirit may be working in your life. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.